day I was driving by a mall and I noticed a Christmas store. I guess there are stores that are Christmassy year-round. You can go buy a Christmas tree, you can buy ornaments and other Christmassy items. And as I was thinking of it, I immediately asked myself the question, why don't we have Easter stores? Now you see where this is going, right? I was thinking, why wouldn't you have an Easter store? And then it occurred to me, well, we don't do the same things at Easter that we do at Christmas. We don't really give each other gifts like we do at Christmas. Um, moms sometimes make an Easter basket for their children. Uh, my daughter called Becky earlier this week and said, can you tell me how you're getting me my Easter basket? <laughs> she said, I'm so sorry. You're not getting one of those ever again. Not from us. Those days have ended. She was really looking forward to the free candy. But we don't have Easter stores. And, and even from a secular sense, I guess Santa Claus beats the Easter Bunny all over the place, right? Because you don't really see a lot of inflatable bunnies around. We, we don't have, we don't buy trees. Do you know, really, the only thing that's certain about Easter is that in the United Kingdom, they're going to eat about 250 million Cadbury cream eggs. That's the only certain thing that's going to happen. The entire nation is going to be on some sort of horrible sugar high. Well, I think it's because as as sacred as Christmas is to us, the birth of Jesus, the offering of peace to those who would come to him by faith. Easter is a little bit different. For those of us who believe, Easter is a time of joy. But it's not just joy. Easter is a time of judgment. In fact, if you read scripture, and we'll notice this in the next service, Jesus is described as a lamb, and we think of him as a lamb. And at Christmas, you even have this kind of mildness, right? Silent night, sleep in heavenly peace. There's a mildness to Christmas. But as he's depicted as the resurrected Lord, he's a lion, He's triumphant over, the, over death, over sin, over the grave. And in his triumph, he demands worship. When I was stationed at Ammunition Supply Point 3 during my time in the Gulf War, I was in a bunker and I noticed on the wall someone had written these words. I, I have never forgotten that man has created God in his own image. Do you realize that from the, nearly the beginning of human civilization, mankind has been trying to control God rather than be controlled by him? We have been attempting forms of self-government rather than being ruled by him. Those attempts have even necessitated changing God from what he is into something he is not, or even worse, replacing him with something far below who he is. Remember what the Apostle Paul wrote. In Romans chapter 1, that man has changed the glory of the incorruptible God to be an image 
like unto corruptible man, and to birds, and to animals, even snakes and other reptiles, creeping things. This is what our Hindu friends have done with Ganesh, the half-elephant, half-man god. And you can compare that to Dagon, the ancient Syrian god, who was half-fish, half-man. Idols have always been strange like that. Marduk, the Mesopotamian god, was a dragon. You can see the image of him uh, still on the parts of the Ishtar Gate that led into Babylon, one of the seven gates of the city that are still uh, around. I think they're in the British Museum. But this is where mankind is today. Either man refuses to worship God, that's Western civilization, or they worship a false God, that's Eastern civilization, but neither are acceptable to God because he commands our worship. The little baby who accepted from the wise men their gold and their and their myrrh and their frankincense, the spices, there's a sense in which they're almost foisted on him, where he, he doesn't have a choice but accept them, right? He's a, he's a child. There's no sense of demand. But now, he demands worship. Man may choose not to worship him. Man may decide that, that they're just not going to do that. I, I will not submit to him. But they don't have a choice because eventually they will. Well, Christmas is all about heaven. Friends, Easter is about hell. Because this is essentially what we are being saved from. We are being saved from hell. So here we find in this text, Paul in Athens on a holiday, he's on vacation. I mean, this is the worst vacation, right? He's trying to get away. He's been in Thessalonica. If you go back and read at the beginning of chapter 17, he's in Thessalonica. He gets run out of town by some envious and angry Jewish people. He ends up in, in uh, Berea. He gets run out of town by the Jews who came from Thessalonica. And his friends, finally, if you go back to verse, uh, I don't know, 16, 15, 15, they conducted Paul and brought him to Athens. There, there he is going on vacation. You need some time off. You've had kind of a bad way. In fact, before Thessalonica was Philippi where he got beaten and put in stocks. I mean, he's had a kind of a rough time. So he needs a vacation. So he's here he is. He's on his cruise, right? He's on his vacation in Athens. And like Paul, you can never get him to just stop and, and go, you know, just, just go down to the, to the market and buy some fruit and have a good time. No, Paul decides to go to the Jewish synagogue and he begins debating the Jews there. And then he goes down to the market and he starts arguing with the Gentiles. And they are really interested in what he has to say because they, he seems to be to them a setter forth of strange religion. They call him a babbler. And because he preached Jesus and the resurrection, they lead him up to the Areopagus. They lead him up to where their court held uh, session. This is essentially where they're going to decide whether Paul is legitimate or not. And they say, okay, defend yourself. And Paul preaches 
this sermon. And because we already know the context of the message Paul is preaching, the resurrection from the dead, it makes sense that we think of his entire sermon with that context in mind. Everything Paul is speaking about in the body of the sermon leads to one striking conclusion. Idol worship is worthless because there's only one God and he demands repentance. So we might say it this way. Can we look at this sermon and say what Paul is preaching on is penitential worship as the only response worthy of the resurrection. And to prove this point, especially to a non-Christian audience, Paul begins with creation, explains what that means, and then makes an application of that to the crowd. So begin number one. God is the uncreated creator of everything. In fact, if you look at verse 24, notice what he says about God. Right at the very beginning of the verse. God made the world. Now where is Paul citing? Where is he quoting from? It's not a direct quotation, not even from the Septuagint. But this is clearly an allusion back to an Old Testament text. And what would it be? The very first verse in our Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the cosmos. In fact, the word here, cosmos, our word world, there's no Old Testament equivalent for this word. It just means God made everything. Here he says, God set everything in its rightful order and place. And to the Greek mind, this actually would make some sense. They had a belief in a creator God who made the cosmos. It was a false belief, but they had some understanding of that. So in verse 24, he wants to be clear. The God I'm speaking of is the God who made everything. He made the universe. He also says, though, in verse 26, something even more important than that. Notice here, he says, and hath made of one blood all the nations of the earth. So not only did God create everything, he created everyone. My friends, since the middle of the 19th century, mankind collectively has been trying to unravel the truth that God created mankind. It didn't really begin with Darwin's book. The short title is The Origin of the Species, right? It doesn't begin with that. There were people teaching this and holding this belief before Darwin. Darwin puts it into written form, publish it, it becomes well known. And so his name is now attached to the word evolution, Darwinian evolution. Why is it important for man to say God did not create him? Because if you don't believe God created you, then you have no responsibility to him. I mean, it makes logical sense that the pot can't say to the potter, why have you made me like this? And everything in our culture that we look on as morally heinous and grotesque is really derived from the fact that man refuses to acknowledge God as his creator. God 
is the uncreated creator of everything. Now, with that in mind, Paul then moves to the next idea. Once you believe that God created everything, because he is the creator, and just notice the logical flow here, he's Lord over all. His lordship is demonstrated first in his giving. Notice verse 25. He's not worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need. Rather, he gives to those who need. He gives to all life and breath and all things. So the water that we drink isn't our water. Not even the town of Cary can claim it. State of North Carolina a few years ago, some of you will remember this, they tried to tax well water. They were going to put meters on everybody's wells because it's not fair. If you have a well, then you don't have to pay for water. And that didn't go over well. It, it, it never happened. In fact, I will tell you, when we built this building, I, I told the architect, I want the site architect, I want to keep our well. He dug it up anyway. I didn't know until it was gone. I came one day, our well was gone. I said, wait a minute. I told him to keep the well. They had, uh, they not only tore it up, they paved over it. So we drive over our old well every Sunday, back and forth. And it bothers me because I wanted that well water. I could water the grass for free. Well, where did that water come from? It's God's water. He gives to all men. You see, this is the sense of lordship now. It's more than just creator. God doesn't need anything from you. You need something from him. If you don't get oxygen, you can't survive. If you don't get water, you won't live. If you don't get food, your days are numbered. Everything that keeps you on this planet comes from a benevolent God. He gives it to you. That's what he's saying. So his lordship is demonstrated in his giving. It's also demonstrated, continue reading in verse 26. He gave, of one, made of one blood, all the men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he determined the times appointed, their times, and the bounds, the limits of their habitation. He actually is not only Lord in his giving, he's Lord in his limiting. God actually determines the boundaries of man's life. You, by giving thought, cannot add one day, not a day, to your life. You can't do it. Your days are literally numbered. That's not a bad thing. I mean, as David said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord. If God knows the number of my days, I don't have to know it. He knows it. And he limits. He, he limits the oceans. He limits the creatures of the earth. He limits what we can do to the earth. Do, do you realize, friends, there, there's a whole class of people out there worried that we're destroying the earth. Man can't even destroy his own earth. We can't do that because God won't allow it because he's going to destroy it later. <laughs> you, know, you don't get to destroy what I'm going to destroy. I've always been a little bit amused in the middle of the tribulation period. There's going to be a time where the sun will burn very hot. And 
the temperature on the earth is going to rise. You talk about global warming, they will have it. It's coming. And it's nothing like you've ever seen before, right? You, everybody's going to want to move to northern Canada <laughs> just to escape the heat. The truth is, God is the one who sovereignly limits man. All of this is proving his lordship. You see, here's what they're thinking. If gods are out there, and if I can appease the gods, or I can do something to the gods, then I can manipulate the gods to somehow work for me. And God will help. The gods will help me with my agriculture. The gods will help me with fertility and family. The gods will do all of these things. And so the way man is kind of working God is what that young marine, whoever he was, scrolled, scrolled on the wall. Man is creating God in his own image. That's what man is doing. He's trying to manipulate the gods. But he's saying, no, you can't do that. Because God, as the uncreated, the creator, he is Lord. He's Lord over all things. And there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say. There's no power that man has that can somehow undermine or overthrow the lordship of God. He's over all. Which is why Elijah could be so confident on Carmel, right? I mean, here you have the priests of Baal. Do you understand that in, in Elijah's day at that moment, all of the people are thinking Elijah's the crazy one and the Baal priests are the logical, scientific, the right ones? I mean, they're the ones following the science as you were, right? They're following the thinking of the day. But it isn't until the afternoon is spent and these people have injured themselves and nothing has occurred and they're exhausted and Elijah has been mocking them that finally Elijah says, okay, gather around the wood, gather up the water, dig a trench, pour the water over the sacrifice and then stand back and see the power of God. You see, Elijah understood that God was the uncreated creator, and because he's the creator, he was Lord over everything. And that's why he knew that if God wanted to, he would, could consume not just the altar, but the earth if he wanted to. And so when the fire falls, everybody fall on their face, all but one. The people fall on their face and they say, Jehovah, he is God. Jehovah, he is God. What do you think Elijah's doing? He's wetting his sword. Bring me those prophets of Baal. I'm going to take care of them. He's the creator and he's the Lord. Now, all of that leads to Paul's conclusion. This is where Paul is headed with this argument. Paul says, because he's Lord, keep, keep thinking through this statement. He's creator, that makes, he's, it makes him Lord. Because he's Lord, he deserves our penitential worship. This is not the ignorant worship of idolatry. If you go back to verse 22, Paul is agitated because he's looking around Athens and he sees the literal thousands of idols that are there. These are the statues. And they're the statues of animals. And they're statues of women and their statues of men and men and animals put together. All these different statues are there. And even times of people going out to be among these statues and they're laying flowers and they're laying food at the base of these statues. And as they're doing that, 
and they're bowing down to pray, Paul says, I observed your devotions. And he even walks by one of these and it has an inscription and it says, to the God that is unknown. And, and the reason the Athenians did that is they were afraid at, after having all of these gods that went out in every direction from their town for miles on end, they were afraid that they had somehow missed one. They didn't want to offend that God, so they have an inscription now. We have an idol to the unknown God. And so Paul looks at this and says, huh, I'm going to do a little play on words here. You, it is true. There is a God who is unknown to you. It's the real God. But, but he's saying in all of this, you understand all of this that you're doing, this is meaningless. This is ignorant worship. God isn't paying attention to any of this. It's all worthless idolatry. Look at verse 24. He says in the second half of that verse, God, he's the Lord of heaven and earth and he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. You can't build a temple big enough to contain him because everything that you're using to build with, he created. So I'm sitting in a man's garage at a yard sale. I've told you this story. I'm standing in his garage and I'm looking at this beautifully ornate glass box with gold etched on the sides. It was a beautiful box. And I thought, it's not very expensive, but what in the world would I do with it? I take it home. What am I going to do with this box? So I said to the man uh, standing there the, who was head of the yard sale, I said, hey, can you tell me something about this box? What do you do with it? What's the purpose of the box? And uh, he said, oh, I used to keep my God in that box. That, that's where I keep my God. And I said, well, you're selling the box? He says, oh, I've got a bigger God. <laughs> oh, now that makes sense. Then he said, uh, would you like to buy it? <laughs> you know, you, you ever see those, you, Barry, remember Barry Bonds and that poor pitcher would get up there and be shaking and throw the little lob across the plate and you knew he was just going to hit it out of the park into McCovey Cove, I mean, out of the stadium right there in San Francisco, he was just going to black. You know, I'm just standing there. <laughs> Can you throw it underhand? You know, I mean, my God's not going to fit in your box. In fact, my God doesn't fit in any of the boxes. My mother-in-law's standing there. She's rooting through her purse for a track, you know. There's <laughs> a witness and opportunity. You know? It was awesome. That's ignorant worship. We had a group here from Ohio come down and they were just finishing the, the new Hindu temple over here. Uh, the one that's made of cement. It's beautiful. If you've ever seen it, it's very ornate. We walked inside and the priest who was there was very upset because the gods had arrived, but they arrived unassembled. And he wasn't finishing assembling them. Some assembly required. Friends, that's ignorant worship. What, what God demands is penitential worship. You see what he says? He says, Paul says, okay, understand, you are the offspring of God. And God, you can't worship him with gold and silver and stone. That's, that's been engraved with artists doing the engraving. And, and man's, the artificer, the, de the devices, the beautifully ornate things. God's not worshipped by any of that. This is what God is. He, he, will, he has winked at your ignorance for a time, but now, oh no, now he's commanding you 
to repent. There's the application. That's where everything kind of comes to a head. You have to stop what you're doing and actually fall on your face before the true God and repent because He will judge the world in righteousness by that man. And, and here's how He gave evidence that He will do this. He raised that man from the dead. That's Jesus Christ. You understand, we must repent because we are judged unworthy by the righteousness of Jesus. Our best righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We all, in our very best moments, fall short of the glory of God. There are even Christians today who believe that somehow they can be fully cleansed from their sin. And I am here to tell you, Paul said it best, even when I would do good, evil is present with me. The things I don't want to do, those are the things I do. The things I want to do, those are the things I don't want to do. I'm a wretched man. The only answer is repentance. To fall on your face before a holy God and say, I am unworthy. And only in your righteousness can I come and approach your throne. We must worship God because we are, because God accepts our repentance based on the resurrection of Jesus. You see, we must repent because of the righteousness of Jesus. We now worship Him because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because He rose from the dead, the cross, if it was all there was, would not have been enough. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, we could rejoice in some way, I suppose that our sins had been atoned for, but we would have no real hope for the future. But because he rose from the dead, we have hope that we will also rise from the dead. That's why we sorrow as those who have, not sorrow as those who have no hope, we sorrow with hope. When mom and dad die, even worse, when a child dies, those things happen. We don't sorrow like the hopeless people around us. We worship him. Many years ago, a professor, actually he was a professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Ted's, up in the uh, Chicago area. Before that, he was a missionary in the Far East, and he was uh, in a village, and smallpox uh, was ravaging the village. People were dying, and they wanted to, the villagers wanted to buy a water buffalo to sacrifice to the gods to get rid of the smallpox. Now, he knew that would not get rid of smallpox. You can kill all the water buffaloes on earth, and that's not going to fix smallpox, you know. Uh, a virus is going to get you. So he, he, the Christians in the village said, we can't give you any money. And the villagers themselves, without the Christians, did not have enough money to buy a water buffalo. And now we're convinced that they were dying because the Christians wouldn't give them money to buy the water buffalo. You see the dilemma here? And it wasn't until, listen to this, it's amazing. It wasn't until one of the little Christian girls in the church got smallpox and died. The villagers saw how the Christians were mourning this little girl, this 10-year-old girl who got smallpox and died. They watched the, the believers in the church mourn and weep, but with hope. And when they saw that, it changed their entire perspective on the way they were looking at the gods. And this 
This writer, this scholar who came back and taught missiology to a bunch of seminary students, he said, yeah, I didn't realize until that moment how powerful the resurrection of Jesus is. Because of his righteousness, I must repent. But because of his resurrection now, as I repent, I worship him because he rose and I will one day rise. And that's the glory of the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time.